Hi, it's Randy Kugler, and welcome to episode two of Racing with RK. Today we're going to talk about how I was introduced to karting and the early years of the WKA, how it was formed, and how it really got off the ground. So let's start off with 1959. I was about five years old, and my brother was off on the weekends with his buddies racing something called a track rabbit, which back in the back in the day was the first type of go-kart. It had a roll bar. Some of them even had seat belts. Not at all like the carts we have today, but that was how karting began, at least out in, in Ohio. My dad found out that my brother was racing these track rabbits, and he wasn't too keen on my brother doing that on his own without him being involved. So my dad sent my brother down and said, if you're going to, if you're going to do this, we're going to do it together. So my dad and my brother started going to this dirt track near our house and racing the track rabbits. It wasn't long until competition carts started being manufactured. I remember my brother driving something that was actually called a go-kart and it was manufactured in California. And back then it was state of the art. And they actually had a couple other people that raced with them and they had a big race team. They all wore the same outfits and it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool back then when I, when I think about it. So for a couple of years, they're competing at this dirt track. And my dad not only was working with my brother on the racing, but he also started helping the, uh, <clears throat> the owner of the dirt track as far as running the races and sharing ideas and so on. Well, one day they had a big disagreement and for sure it got ugly. And I remember, even though I was only just a kid, I remember part of the conversation and it went something like this. The promoter of the track looked at my dad and said, you know what, Kugler, if you know so much, why don't you just build a track of your own? And my dad said, very simply, all right, I will. And with that, the idea and the vision of Linden Valley Raceway Park was formed. And in 1962, Linden Valley Raceway Park kicked off their first season. It was a quarter mile sprint asphalt track in Port Washington, Ohio, that still exists to this day, known as Adkins Raceway Park. Linda Valley Raceway Park operated for about four or five years. And there was another racetrack, as I recall, somewhere in the country that was named Linden Valley Raceway. And they contacted my dad and said, listen, you know, this is a problem. We don't want to fight about this, but is it a big deal if you change your name? He said, no. No problem. We'll change it. We'll call it Kugler Raceway Park. So mid-60s, it became Kugler Raceway Park. And that's how it stayed until it was sold in the, uh, in the late 70s. So I started racing quarter midgets when the track opened up in 62 and ran them for a couple years. And I don't want to say that was a long time ago, and these quarter midgets were pretty vintage, but I had a handbrake. Yeah, I did. Because back in the 60s, <clears throat> if you went to a midget race, the drivers used a handbrake where they reached outside the car and they would just kind of pull back and forth on the handbrake, kind of feather it into the corner and release. And, and that's, that's what I had. I wasn't that good in a quarter midget. And eventually, um, after about a year of it, uh, we moved on to karting. So about 65, I guess, I started racing karts. 
in 67, I went to my first national at Riverside, California, the IKF Nationals. What an experience that was. Uh, we loaded up and went across the country in a, in a camper and then uh, raced at Riverside and then drove back all the way across the country. So a great experience. I wound up on my head first time I had flipped, but I was probably better for it to tell you the truth because it's, uh, it was a learning experience for me. I learned a lot about racing in a lot of traffic, racing against kids that are as good or better than me and, and how to learn from it, how to adapt to it. So I, I have no regrets about landing upside down at Riverside because I think it was, um, it was probably better for me in learning how to be a better driver. In 68, we went to Batavia, New York for the IKF Nationals. Got a top 10, I think maybe eighth in Reed Jr., Another big event for the IKF Nationals. The, the IKF Nationals on the East Coast were always huge. They're always about twice the size of the West Coast IKF Nationals. <clears throat> and I think a big reason was because for whatever, for whatever reason, the East Coasters didn't travel a lot to the West Coast when the Nationals were out there. But there was always a big contingent of West Coast carters that would come East. So Riverside might have had 250 entries in 67. Batavia had probably 500 and that's just the way it was I don't exactly know why but that's the way it was also in 67 was my first race at Barnesville Georgia Barnesville Georgia was the IKF Winter Nationals that actually started in 1960 I want to say 1966 because in 65 there was a race I want to it's like in Tampa Florida maybe Orlando Florida it was the IKF Winter Nationals and they they did qualifying on a makeshift drag strip and the carts would drag race and then however they sorted out through their class in the, in the drag race that's how they started their sprint race at another track so that was that was kind of a crazy deal in 65 but 66 again um, IKF National I think we're in Quincy and we actually went out to watch the races there and then 67 was Riverside 68 Batavia um, Getting back to my race at Barnesville in 67, my first Winter Nationals, I finished fifth, which I thought was pretty exciting. And in fact, that same year, a young man by the name of Lynn Haddock won two or three classes down there. And that's the first time I heard that name, not even realizing that Lynn Haddock would become one of the most legendary names in the sport of karting. So uh, my first memory of Lynn Haddock down in Barnesville in 67, he was fast then. I guarantee if he sat in the car today, he'd still be fast. Still builds a great motor and uh, just a lot of history, a real pioneer in karting, Lynn Haddock. So going through the years, uh, 69 uh, was um, probably my best year as a racer. I, uh, I actually won Barnesville. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story about that. Um, I, was, uh, I was running second in one of the heat races. And I was chasing this guy in a Margay. And that's what Margay was just kind of coming around, just becoming a, a player in, in Cardi, a big player. <clears throat> and I'm chasing this guy, kid in a Margay, and we come up on a lap cart. And we go down the front straight of Barnesville. And if you've been to Barnesville, they have a place, I think they used to call it Spin Point, where you, you head down the front straight, which is about 300, 400 feet long, and then you make this left turn, and it's really sharp. And you darn near have to come to a stop to get around it. So I'm following him, and we get up to the slap cart, and he goes to the high side to pass him. Well, I go to the low side. So we're splitting 
this kid, lapping him. And we get to that first turn, and I just bonsai the corner. I just go in there as deep as I can, figuring I'm either going to do a slide job and get in front of him, or I'm going to go off and end up in the woods. Well, I made the turn, and I got in front of him, and I won the race. And ultimately that day with my total points, because it was motocross points back then for the three heats, I ended up being the winter national champion. So truly one of the biggest moments of my karting career. <clears throat> so we fast forward now to about, oh, probably the late 1990s. I was president of WKA, and I'm down in Hickory North. I'm sorry, we're in Charlotte for the, at that time, the Kart Fest trade shows and banquets were in Charlotte. So we're in Charlotte for the trade show. And we're sitting around having a drink in a bar, and there's me, Sandy Gregory, Rick Folks, and there's a couple other people. And we're just, you know, shooting the bull. And uh, somebody asked me if I ever raced. And I said, yeah. And I said, in fact, let me tell you the one of the biggest moments of my racing career. And I tell him the story about Barnesville and how I passed this kid on the white flag lap when we were lapping a cart. And I won the race and ended up winning the, winning the Winter Nationals. And as I'm telling the story, Rick Folks, I'm sorry, Randy Folks, starts to smile. <clears throat> and I get done telling the story and he looks at me and he says, do you know who that guy was you passed on that last lap? I said, no, I really don't. I have no idea. And he smiled and he said, it was me. So little did I know that in 1969, I was racing Randy Folks. And Randy Folks doesn't even need an introduction. I mean, when it comes to road racing, he may be the greatest ever. Uh, just like a Lynn Haddock in sprint racing, Randy Folks is a, is a pioneer. He's legendary. And I always joke about how in 1969, I was undefeated against Randy Folks and Kyle Atkins. Because at Camden, where I finished third in the IKF Nationals, I beat Kyle Atkins, and I also beat him at Barnesville. Another legendary driver, one of the best ever. And I also beat Randy Falk. So uh, that's my claim to fame in karting. But another thing happened during that time. Another story about uh, when I was racing at my home track. I'd never been to a race. I'd never competed in a race without my dad being there. And my dad was a big hunter, big moose hunter. So he's going on a hunting trip in Canada. And normally I just wouldn't race. If he wasn't there, I'd just, well, you know, I'll just hang out. So he said, he's taken the, he's, he's gone hunting. And, and I looked at him, I said, you know, I, I'd really like to race this weekend. Are you okay with that? He goes, yeah, I'm fine with it. He said, you know, just, just be careful, you know, just be safe and have fun. So he goes off on his hunting trip and I decide I'm going to race. So, I mean, I don't know, whatever whatever heat it was, We back then again we did the three heat system, but let's say it's the second heat, I'm about mid-pack, racing at the track that's now called Atkins Raceway Park, and um, if, you've, if you've ever been there, there's a big bank corner, you come out of it, the Monza corner, you come out, there's a right-handed corner, we call it the switchback. And then there's a little short straight, left-hander and then another left-hander that sends you down a long straight that runs parallel to Bunker Hill Road, which is the road that runs along the racetrack. So I come around that corner, and I'm just about to hit the turn that takes you onto Bunker Hill Road straight, and a cart had spun out and was facing me. And when I came around the corner, I hit him head-on. Threw me out of the cart, I barrel rolled down the straightaway. I was fine, I had a cut in my hand, but no big deal. But I got up and I couldn't find my cart was gone 
and I look and a couple of my buddies are carrying my cart from the woods up over the mods of turn bringing it back and this thing was leveled it I mean the highest part of that cart couldn't have been more than a foot high the throttle had jammed when I wrecked and the cart took off and went up over the Monza and into the woods and just tore it up. So we get the cart back to the, uh, back to the, the, the shop and uh, I just kind of put it in there and close the doors like I'm going to look at it. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I got to tell my dad. Yeah, I got to tell my dad that, <laughs> that while he was gone, I totaled this cart. But it wasn't my fault. I mean, I'm not the one that spun out. So I go to my mom and I said, listen, you're going to tell dad what happened, right? She goes, no, I don't think so. You're going to tell him. Man, I'm shaking in my boots. So my dad gets back and we're down at the track and we're talking. And I, I take a deep breath and I say, dad, I got to show you something. So we walk down to the shop and I open the door. And if you knew my dad, you could hear him say this. He said, what in the H did you just do? What have you done? I said, look, before you jump to conclusions, let me explain what happened. It was not my fault. I was racing around the corner. Bobby had spun out. He's facing towards me, and I hit him head on. I had no choice. I had nowhere to go. And i never forget it. It was almost like it was on cue. <coughs> Excuse me. He looked at me, and he said, remember one thing when you're racing. Don't look under your nose, because if you're looking under your nose, whatever it is you see, you've already hit. You've got to look ahead all the time and know what's coming, because that's the only way you're going to get through this and be a better driver. And that day, I became a better driver just hearing that, and I became a better person too. Some of the best advice my dad ever gave me. So moving through the year, 1970, the Nationals were at Quincy. We went out there and raced. It was my first year in the senior classes. Didn't fare that well. And then uh, 71 Camden. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Sorry, I got a dry throat today. 71 in Camden. IKF Nationals, again, didn't, uh, didn't, didn't finish too well. But there was something else going on way beyond me. The, the IKF was the sanctioning body for all of karting in the United States at that time. <clears throat> and to say there was a little trouble brewing is an understatement. The question is why? So just picture this. <clears throat> the International Card Federation is based in Southern California. They have a board of directors. The board of directors have representation in New York, I think at the time maybe Tennessee, Possibly Florida. I don't know. There was only two or three people east of the Mississippi, and everybody else was either West Coast, <clears throat> Upper Pacific Northwest, all in that area. So the perception immediately by the East Coast racers was it's a West Coast organization. They don't really care about us. I'm not going to say to you that that was true. But I can tell you it was true. That was the perception. And I could see as a kid why people felt that way. At Camden, the pot boiled over for a few reasons. One, I remember like it was yesterday. There was a race in the B Open class. And on the front row was Lake Speed, 
who, even though was from Mississippi, had been just a, a top IKF racer, one of the best in the business, and a local driver that ran for Bob Jeffries, Big J, which was an icon in Ohio when it came to building engines and manufacturing carts. He was the manufacturer of the Lancer cart. He's on outside front row. They go through the Camden. You know, you if you've been to Camden, you have a a sweeping uh, 90 degree left hander to start the race, and then you got a kink. You go back and you make another quick left and a quick right. <clears throat> and they came through that first turn and then to the second one, and the two got together. And Lake and I, I would have probably done the same thing, but Lake, you know, kept his line and and hoping Dwayne would back off, but Dwayne stuck it in there. The two got together and knocked Dwayne out. <clears throat> so that didn't go well. And Big J was upset about that. Well, then we got into tech, and there was a lot of the engines in tech that from the West Coast, that, and, and I, I don't know the details of it, but I can tell you there are still members of the OVKA that were involved with tech back at that time will tell you word for word what happened. And, you know, maybe one day in a podcast we can, we can talk about that with one of, the, one of the members. But there was an issue with the flywheel. And the way we interpreted the rule on the East Coast from the rule book was one way, the way the West Coast folks were interpreting it was another. Were we right? Were they right? I, I don't know. But in the mind of the Eastern Carter, here we go again. And it was like the perfect storm. The pot boiled over. My dad, Dick Wilson, who was at the time the promoter of the Barnesville race, the biggest East Coast race year in and year out that IKF had. Bob Jeffries, which influenced a lot of people. What Bob Jeffries did, people followed. Uh, ben Ray Griffith, which was uh, headed up an enduro karting club on the East Coast, was not happy with the IKF. Uh, there were there were several uh, players that, uh, that came together that day. Uh, Ron Withrow was the president of the OVKA, and he came forward and said, I think we should start something. I, we need to start another organization. So that day, the idea of a new organization started. After that, there were meetings in a Crescent Raceway in Toledo with Jim Vale, who headed up the Crescent Raceway and Crescent Carburetors. Jim was a very powerful individual in East Coast karting. There was a meeting at, uh, at our racetrack, at, at Cougar Raceway. And I remember Ron Withrow talking to people about what we would call it. And somebody said, well, let's call it the World Karting Association. They're the International Kart Federation. Let's call it World Karting Association. Ron said, those in favor, raise your hand. Darn near every hand went up. And that day, the World Karting Association was formed. Well, that's fine. On paper, the World Karting Association had been formed. There was officers. My dad was involved. Ron Withrow actually was the first president of WK, not my dad. It was Ron Withrow. The pieces were coming together, but obviously none of this works without membership and without races. Memberships were coming in, but not enough to run the organization. A gentleman stepped up from Dayton, Ohio, and probably had as much to do with WK moving forward in the beginning as anybody. His name was Bob Sellers. Bob had kids racing in IKF and ultimately in the WK. I raced with, with uh, some of uh, uh, 
Bob's sons, Ron Sellers, Doug Sellers. Still talk to Doug on Facebook to this day. Doug's son, Brian, is a, a world-renowned uh, sports car racer, one of the best in the business right now. So Bob Sellers said, listen, you need an office. you got to have a place. You need phones. You need a copy machine. You need a printer. You need all this stuff. Back then, you needed a typewriter, not a computer, because we didn't know what a computer was. Bob Sellers gave WK an office rent-free and said, make it happen. You will not have to pay for the office. You will not have to pay for the phone. You will not have to pay for the, the utilities. Make it happen. So because of Bob Sellers, WK now had a base. They had an address. They had a physical address. They had a brick and mortar. And that was so critical because now they had taken that next step. They were physically an organization with members, with an infrastructure, ready to move forward and have events. Now, two players that had as much to do as Bob Sellers, certainly, and everybody else. In fact, I, <clears throat> sometimes I think that these two gentlemen put WK over the top, put them forward and gave them that momentum. Those two gentlemen were Dick Wilson and Ben Ray Griffith, and I'll tell you why. Dick Wilson owned Lamar County Speedway. Most of you know it is Barnesville. Barnesville carried the largest race every year, the Winter Nationals, largest race on the East Coast. In fact, the largest karting event anywhere in the United States every year in Barnesville. The West Coasters came to race it. All the East Coasters supported it. It was bigger most years than the Nationals. Dick Wilson had had enough too. He felt like IKF didn't care about people on the East Coast. So Dick told my dad, I'm in. The first WK race needs to be the Winter Nationals in Barnesville, Georgia. And so it was. The WK Winter Nationals in Barnesville was held in 1972. Over 400 entries at their first event. IKF held a track, held a race, their version of the IKF Winter Nationals on the East Coast in Florida that same time, same time of year, and had about 150 carts. Enduro racing was also big at that time on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and it was all IKF. Ben Ray Griffith, which along with Dick Wilson became a pillar of the WK growth, one of the people that really helped structure what became such a great organization. Ben Ray Griffith came to my dad and, and said, you know, Danville holds the IKF Winter Nationals for Enduros, which we now call Road Race. I am very involved with the Woodbridge Car Club, and I've had enough of IKF too. So Danville, Virginia, which is now the Virginia International Raceway, held the first Enduro race for WKA, about 500 entries. And all of a sudden, WK had members, they had a history, both races were solid, they were successful, and they had, a, they had a revenue stream now. And it just all snowballed. Tracks were coming on board. I want to be sanctioned with the WK. <clears throat> there was a spring nationals at Kugler Raceway. There was a summer nationals at Broadhead, Wisconsin. There was a fall nationals at Batavia. 
and on and on. Then we looped around in 73 to another successful race in Barnesville. Within a couple of years, WK had actually outgrown the IKF and was full speed ahead from that point. Without those individuals, I, I just, I don't know how WK would have ever became more than just an overgrown club. But they all came together with a common goal, and that was to develop an organization where the customer felt as though they had a fair shake. Now, I want to say something about the IKF. I don't want anybody that listens to this podcast to think that I believe the IKS, IKF purposely was trying to mess anybody over on the East Coast. But I believe they underestimated how unhappy the East Coast Carter was. I believe they underestimated the lack of attention they were giving to those racers. And I believe they underestimated the perception that had been developed by so many people on the East Coast about IKF really not caring about what they thought, what they wanted, or what they did. That, I think, is where IKF made their mistake. And again, as I said, the rest is history. WK just grew by leaps and bounds in the 70s. And, and certainly things we can't cover in one podcast, but things that we're going to talk about down the road that were so important in the development of, uh, of WKA. Uh, you know, we've we got to talk about Daytona and how Daytona came about and, and what it meant to the credibility of WK, even to this day. Uh, Charlotte came into play and, and, and look at the involvement now with Charlotte and now a sprint track's been developed at Charlotte again for the WKA. So many things in the 70s that developed WKA and chartered, it, charted its course. And let us not forget the emergence of four-cycle racing. And I'll talk about that in an upcoming podcast. But a gentleman by the name of Dan Klutz and a few of his friends came up to Canton, Ohio and met with my dad and explained four-cycle racing to my dad. And the two of them got together and decided there was a place in WK for that. And thank God they did. Because four-cycle racing just went through the roof. In fact, in some cases, it became bigger than two-cycle racing. So those are the things we want to talk about and give, give credit and take the time to, to discuss how it went down. I hope in future podcasts I can actually do some interviews because I think it would be so cool to hear the perspective not just for me that was more of an observer and a competitor, but from those that actually lived it, like a Neil Keller, like a, like a Ben Ray Griffith. And you'll hear me talk about a lot of those people in upcoming episodes. Gil Horseman, who was from the West Coast, had Horseman Manufacturing, but developed a strong friendship with my dad, with Dick Wilson. Uh, Gil Horseman was such a player to help the success of WK and the four-cycle element of it. He was four-cycle racing in WK with the Horseman Gold Cup. It was just an automatic. Uh, Bob Jeffries, obviously, although Bob passed away, in the, I believe, in the 70s, but Bob was instrumental in the beginning because he was so powerful and people listened to him and followed him and what he wanted, and he was all in with WK. Uh, Neil Keller we're going to talk about in future episodes. Neil was a cornerstone when it came to tech for WK. Neil helped develop the tech book. He got together with the IKF tech members and they actually developed a North American tech committee where they could find some common ground and racers could go back and forth without making a lot of changes to their engine. Emerson Dismore was 
a constant supporter of the WK when it came to Daytona. I remember they always gave a new cart. I don't know why I remember that, but it was huge. A new cart at the banquet at Daytona every year. Emerson Dismore always supported the, the WK Enduro program. And Mark actually raced a lot of WK sprint races. I raced with Mark a few times. Usually got to see him from his rear bumper because I followed him. But uh, Mark, was, uh, Mark was a great driver back then and always, always was. Um, Joe Grubbs was out of Florida. Joe was very instrumental in my dad getting connected to uh, Daytona International Speedway and the France family. And we'll talk about that in upcoming episodes. So, you know, so many things to cover. And so many people deserving of the acknowledgement of how they helped the WK grow. And so, you know, the purpose of these podcasts, along with reporting on local racing and where I'm going and doing some announcing and things that are happening, I want people to understand the hard work so many people put into to make WK grow, survive, and evolve into the 80s, 90s, and then into the 21st century. So that's what I hope to accomplish on these podcasts. And Hopefully you're enjoying them. This about wraps up uh, episode number two, my early years in karting and also uh, the early years at WKA. Uh, race safe, race fast. Uh, say a prayer for the first responders. We still, I mean, this world has still gotten so crazy. And, and as we <clears throat> work our way through our daily life, do we wear a mask? Don't we wear a mask? Can I go here? Can I go there? Remember policemen, firemen, Hospital workers, they don't have a choice. They're in this every day, every day, because it's their, their duty. Say a prayer for them, because they deserve it. They're, they've got a lot of challenges now that are unforeseen, and I don't know why, but they do. And the majority of them are good people. Remember that. Say a prayer for them because they, they need your thoughts and prayers as they go about their duty every day in the trenches. This is Randy Kugler racing with RK. Remember, racers don't live forever, but racing memories do. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody.